part of remembering, it seems, is saying goodbye all over again. Can you, you know, uh, reach back to the goodbye? <laughs> what, what, was, um, what was saying goodbye to that space? Was there any ritual around it? We closed it in the spring. So we in, in May, I think we did two sort of farewell performances, uh, you know, a collection of highlights. I'm asking Bill Millard about parting with the Seymour Street Theatre in 1991, the theatre Yvonne had created, one that by this point had already spawned a second and third space, the Granville Island stage and the Review stage, respectively. The 1970s had seen audiences balloon at the Arts Club by the thousands. And the company kept growing through the 80s and was now rivaling the official regional theatre, the Vancouver Playhouse, for audience numbers. But the Seymour Street Theatre wasn't destined to carry deep into the 90s. Not with how Vancouver's downtown was rapidly changing. As artistic director of the Arts Club, Bill had to contend with this. We certainly did everything we could to save it, uh, including trying to get the city to declare it a heritage building so they couldn't tear it down. But nobody thought it was a heritage building. Uh, you know, its history as a theater was what was um, uh, important to remember and that, you know, that doesn't have a heritage function. Are there, are there any moments in that room that, you know, as you close your eyes, you go, oh, that moment, that moment, that moment, um, that, that burble up for you? Well, one of the things that, and uh, uh, one of those two performances, the, the one that was people doing, talking about experiences at Seymour Street, uh, was uh, Morris Panis talking about how the walls have stories. Bill yesterday mentioned that you spoke really movingly. Do you remember what you said? No. It's probably bullshit. What did I say? Director and playwright Morris Panich reflecting on the farewell to Seymour Street performance that Bill was referring to. I don't know what it is, but it's, 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 it's this feeling of belonging somewhere. And, and, and I think that so much had happened in that space that was so uh, important to me and so, um, and so real. Can you tell me about the building? Well, I'll tell you, it, it was a very rickety old shithouse, and, um, it, but it had a lot of personality. There's something incredibly like, breathtaking about the first time, as a young actor, you walk into a dressing room of a theater that's been around for a while. And all the walls are filled with quotes and signatures from people who've been there and done shows. And you feel like you've, you've walked into something really important, something that, you know, something that you're part of. It was wonderful. But the place itself was a filthy shithole. And um, it was so bad. I remember once we were doing, we were, uh, we were, uh, we were in tech for, uh, a show that I wrote called Necessary Steps and um, Patty Allen was in it she put her back out which she quite regularly did <laughs> but she put her back out and so I said well you, why don't you just lie on the floor because we have to do the tech why don't you just lie on the floor of the stage 
and say your lines and everybody else will move around you and we'll just do the lights that way because I don't know how else we can do this. So she laid on the floor with her back. <laughs> At one point I hear this scream and Patty said a cockroach landed on her face. That's so, that is so Seymour Street. The walls have stories of all kinds. And what happens to those stories when those walls are gone? Death and theater always go hand in hand for me. I know that sounds a bit depressing. I don't mean it to be. It's just that when I direct a show in particular, but even when I'm acting, I'm always reminded that theater is the art of letting go. You gotta get good at letting go. Or as I once heard someone say, let go or be dragged. Things come and go so quickly in the theater, it's part of its beauty. Now this episode is about death and memory and sacred spaces. These are the kinds of themes you may leave for a final episode of a podcast series. And I've opted to put them right in the middle, center stage. It is a thing of its moment, and then it doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's something that's the hallmark of theater as opposed to film or any other kind of recorded art, that it just exists for a time and then it's gone. I'm Andrew Kushner, and this is Something Else. Let's play the theme song. One, suddenly Seymour. I want to get the 80s. Like, what was happening? What were people thinking? This is Morris talking about Cats, the musical. Suddenly I'm going, why are a bunch of cats singing? And how did this ever become a hit? Uh-huh. And I'm guessing because there was a vacuum. I mean, maybe a, maybe even a moral vacuum, which there always has been, but there was must have been a very weird moral vacuum that was filled by T.S. Eliot poems about cats. So Morris hated cats, and what it said for its day. His take on Vancouver's theatre scene at the time is infinitely more effusive. There was an outburst of creativity that was uh, at the same time insular because... It was sort of uniquely of its own thing. But there was an outburst of creativity that started to happen in, in Vancouver in the, in the late 70s that went into the 80s. Celebrated actor Corrine Coslow can corroborate this. I was coming into Vancouver, you know, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old. Um, but what I remember um, that, you know, it really was a heady, um, you know, it was just uh, potent. It was a working city. So it had a very, um, it had a different feel, a different smell, a different aesthetic. And so the arts, um, you know, um, all of the um, uh, theater at that time, I mean, it was really exciting. Lest we forget that the professional theater scene was basically 20 years old at this point. 20-year-olds are sparky. 
they're sexy. They're beautifully impatient. And by and large, when they discover the world isn't as they thought it was or want it to be, they often take matters into their own hands. When he speaks of the earliest days of the improv comedy company Vancouver Theatre Sports, Morris offers this. To get an audience, and we, it, we're saying, I'm telling you, we were, they were free. It was free. To get an audience, we had to go outside and next door to the McDonald's restaurant and ask people to please come and sit and watch our show. And that was how desperate we were for an audience. But I'm telling you within, and I'm not exaggerating, probably within six to eight months of that, you couldn't get a ticket. Huh. And, but that was the kind of energy that was going on. So you had this community, this city that was still workman, industrial, dirty, exciting. You had culture coming up through that roots of that mud a little bit and expressing that there, you know, it was, um, it was a different time in Vancouver. There wasn't the money, you know, there wasn't the money that there is now. It was quite, you know, I mean, I, I actually think it was uh, uh, way less conservative than it is now. It's actually become a bit stupid, frankly. I mean, I, when I first moved to Vancouver, I just loved how dirty and weird it was. Like this, the gay scene was dirty and weird. The whole city was weird. And, you know, you could get away with a lot. By the early 80s, we start getting a sense of the push and pull in Vancouver between more edgy work and more mainstream stuff. Lynn Bennett, who was theatre critic in the British Columbia Monthly, dubbed the 1982-83 Vancouver theatre season one of, quote, stylistic drought, and said that companies in the city were compensating for risky ventures they'd been punished for in the season prior. She refers to Vancouver as a, quote, craziness-starved theatrical public, and that the arts club in particular, quote, kept showing everyone else how they understand survival. Give them laughs and glitz, end quote. But the way Bill tells it, he was trying to figure out what the Seymour Street Theatre's focus would be now that he had the Granville Island stage and review stage in play. Each of these spaces had its own distinct character, as would the Stanley Theatre once it eventually hit the scene in the late 90s. But what of the original space? The humble little Seymour? How was it going to survive? I insisted that we never refer to Seymour Street as our second space. Uh, that it was that it was its own theater, uh, that it had its own personality, that it had a long history, that it was our original home. Once I figured out that that Seymour Street would be a place to do new work, um, you know, as I say, Talking Dirty, Sherman Snickles play opened. Uh, we did a play by play by uh, John Lazarus and, and Morris Panitch probably most famously, that this would be a place for new work, for different work, for more experimental work, what have you. Seven Stories, Morris's second play, was to become a quintessential work for the space and the company. The play's a Canadian classic now. The Talon Books website, Talon Books publishes it, says it's ranked ninth out of the top ten best-selling plays in Canada. It tells the tale of a Chaplin-esque man on the seventh-story ledge of an apartment building who keeps having his attempted suicide interrupted by the trials and tribulations of those living on the floor. 
and their dramas keep trumping his. The play was originally commissioned by Larry Lillo. Larry was the BC theatre golden boy who had led Tamanus Theatre in the 70s, then went off to run the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario, only to return to Vancouver in 1988 to take over the Playhouse. Between 1988 and 1993, he would grow the Playhouse's subscription base from 5,800 to 12,000. More on him a bit later. Back to Morris and where Seven Stories came from. Uh, I said I wanted to write a musical about Jack the Ripper, um, which in my mind turned out to be a very bad idea because every time I, it just, I couldn't make it funny, right? Uh You know, you just can't make Jack the Ripper funny. So, uh, or anything. Um, Anyway, so I wrote Larry and I said, I'm writing something else. I'm going to work on something else. And AIDS was happening at the time, like for the first time, AIDS was like, you know, and, and HIV and all of that. And so that came into my consciousness about living and meaningfulness of what was going on in life. And I also at that time even suspected that Larry and his partner John might be infected. And it was a, it was a lot going on and a lot, of, a lot of tension, a lot of weird stuff. So I wrote this play and I wrote this play based on my feelings about, you know, what life meant and what meaning of life was and blah, 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 because of all of that. And Larry didn't like it. Larry didn't like the play. Larry said to Morris, why would you write about suicide? But Morris believed in the thing. He believed in seven stories. So he thrust it on Bill. I took him for lunch and I said, okay, um, you're going to do this play. I'm not leaving this table and you're not leaving this table until you agree to do this play. And he said, well, that's insane. And I said, no, no, it's, you're, this is what's going to happen. You're going to do the play. I don't care what you have to say about it. And uh, here's my cast. And I had already figured out what the cast would be. And here's what, and this is how it's going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And I think Bill was just kind of like stupefied by my arrogance. Morris had one more tactic in his pocket. I had uh, insisted that I get less royalties, which made me a little bit, unpopular with other writers at the time, but I said that I would start, I think I said I'd start at 7% and work my way up to 10 if the show was successful, because I wanted to give him as, I wanted as many possible, you know, reasons for him to do this thing. Anyway, he said yes, and I couldn't believe my luck. And did you know it was going to take off? No. No, I didn't have any idea. I just thought, I was, it was, it was terrifying. Um, no, I had no idea that would be a big hit. Seven Stories is among a string of new works that came to life at the Seymour Street Theatre. These were world premieres, hits made by local artists and the audiences that flocked to them. But all this was happening in a building that the Arts Club was only leasing from another owner. When the building was sold, we, we were... You know, he sold it without offering it to the arts club. Uh, And it was during a time of um, real estate boom in Vancouver. The owners were offshore, and and even though the owner rep was very uh, open, but, you know, he was just the owner's rep, and they just wanted to tear it down and, and build a condo. The city was changing. Really 
because Expo put Vancouver on the map in a way that had never been before. Um, and Li Kaixing bought Falls Creek, and so suddenly the whole city changed its its look and its feel and became more kind of like um, contemporary and less quirky and weird. By 1990, the Seymour Street's lease was up and had been moved into a month-to-month basis, which was untenable. How do you plan a theater season if your space isn't secured for months in advance? But I don't want to say goodbye to the space yet. I've only just started to get to know it. See, I'm hanging on. This is the room where the Arts Club premiered some really noteworthy pieces. There was Creeps, David Freeman's play about four men with cerebral palsy. So many people brought it up as an incredible moment in their theater-going experience. And among them, Sheila Cox, from our first episode of the podcast. And that made me have a different perspective, because I was working as a therapist with patients who were disabled. And do you think it materially changed your practice after seeing that? Yes, I do. And then there were shows that weren't even produced by the Arts Club, but took place at the Seymour Street venue. Theatre historian Jerry Wasserman tells me about a Tamanus Theatre production that blew his mind. And it was their version of the Bacchae. With Larry, with Larry Lillo as Dionysus, huh. directed by John Gray. Uh, and it was done as a 70s political uh, parable. And with audience involvement, um, the audience, the actors, it was an extraordinary piece. And uh, I will never forget the, the last image, Susie Payne as... Um, as I forget the character's name, but uh, Pentheus's mother, who is uh, put under the kind of Dionysian spell and ends up tearing her son to pieces, um, naked from the waist up, uh, covered in stage blood, wailing. <laughs> I still get chills even talking about it. I asked Bill to give me an imaginary tour of a space and place I will never experience for myself. You know, it was two stories, so there was 20 odd stairs. And when you got to the top, the landing, uh, if you turned right, you went into what became, uh, eventually became my office. But if you continue down the corridor, uh, there were the dressing rooms, uh, which when I started uh, working there, was right of what you would call backstage. So once you're in the landing, if you decide to keep going straight ahead, um, maybe oh, 10 or 12 feet, uh, uh, you came to the entrance to the theater space. So then you would turn right again and you walk directly into, uh, into the theater. And uh, yeah. Oh, come on. Let's stay here for a while longer. Act Two, A Sacred Space. There's a show I want to focus on, which played at the Seymour Street Theatre in March of 1986. I don't think it made a single person's list of most remarkable things they saw at Seymour, of all the people I spoke to. But this play spoke to me. Now... If you haven't already, you're going to find this episode very gay. You're welcome. 
The show is called As Is by William M. Hoffman, an American playwright. And it first opened in New York in March 1985. And within a year, Bill programmed it for the Seymour Street, a Canadian premiere. It would star two actors who'd be bringing a lot to the show, a lot of themselves. One of those actors was now director Robert McQueen. We were talking one night, and I said, why did you take me to see all those plays when I was younger? This is Robert. He's talking about his dad. Why did you take me to see so much theater? Because he was not, you know, my dad wasn't personally that deeply invested in theater or music. And he said, well, because I knew you were interested in it, and I wanted you to be able to have the things that you were interested. But he said, but more than that, he said, that, that's what you do to build a strong community. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, we are all responsible to create the community. I mean, you have all these different things that not everyone's going to be interested in all of them, but they should all be able to access them. And I said, well, you know, Dad, you're the last of that breed. Like, we have gone very, very, very far, far, far away from that in how we currently view community and cities and how we are invested entirely in what's in it for me. Robert is now very well known for his directing of musicals in particular, largely for musical stage here in Toronto, but also Stratford and elsewhere. He's a West Van kid whose dad, a guy who worked in the dairy industry, was committed to getting his son out to plays. Robert would go on to attend the professional theatre training program at Studio 58 at Langara College in Vancouver. And it was at theatre school, as is often the case, that he'd discover there were some boys just like him. You know, I wasn't in touch with that. As, as I got into theatre school, when I went to studio, that was 77 to 79, and I started to become, as I kind of grew more into myself, I became much more aware of my own um, desire and my own want and um, kind of, you know, what was unfolding for me. Corrine Coslow, who we heard from earlier, knew Robert well back then. They were both part of a very close circle of friends. We were so young. We were so young. We were. We had stars in our eyes. We just, you know, I've known him for so long that I, to ask about what he was like, he is like who he is now, only as completely sweet and um, still completely mysterious. I always found him quite mysterious when I was young. I thought, well, where, where are we? Who are we? He completes the program at Studio 58, but wants to study more. And he feels the magnetic pull. So many of us theatre people have that moment. Sometimes it lasts a minute, sometimes a lifetime. Will we? Won't we? The Big Apple. And Robert decides to make the move. From one coast to another. New York, the minute I got there, it was like, it just... I mean, I know this will sound grotesquely cliche, but the city literally enveloped me. I get this image of aliveness. Yeah, it was aliveness and it was permission. And I wasn't a freak. And I was, there was, there was going to be somebody who was weirder than me. And, the, and no one cared. No one cared. No one cared. No one, and I don't mean no one cared like, oh, get lost. I just meant everyone said, oh, okay. Okay. The sense of permission 
At that particular moment in time, in history, early 80s, this idea of permission in New York City was going to meet some horrific consequences. So you're in New York in the late 70s. No, I didn't move to, I moved to New York uh, in 1980. Okay. Yeah. So you're there, I mean, I'm trying to remember New York Times first uh, making mention of AIDS. Yeah. Grid, I think at the time it was called. I remember that article. There's that famous New York Times article. July 3rd, 1981. Dr. Lawrence K. Altman wrote the New York Times' first article about AIDS. Headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. According to Dr. Altman, years later, gay had yet to be accepted by the Times' style manual. And those 41 lives lost was just the beginning of the beginning. So there were a lot of older students, and I met one guy who was doing a a show on Broadway who was working in the commercial theater and I got to know him really well and I got to know all of his friends and these were all mostly dancers and they were all doing West Side Story and they had all a lot of them had been in you know a chorus line and they 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 were established they were somewhat older than me and within those first couple of years they all died that whole group uh, so it was all around me. I was in the West Village. You know, it was like all around me. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose in some ways, uh, it's fortunate that I was, I-, I won't say I was repressed because it never felt like I was repressed. It's an interesting thing going through life, feeling somewhat like a camera, like observing and witnessing things. I've always been much more comfortable in that than as a full-blown participant. And I suppose because of that, I have, I'm still alive. Yeah. Uh, because I step back and I would watch things and I would record them. <laughs> and um, I would feel them obviously very deeply, but I always felt slightly at the edge of the thing. Robert had been living in the West Village, and his school was three blocks away from the epicenter of the epidemic, St. Vincent's Hospital. It was called Ground Zero for New York City's AIDS afflicted. You were wearing it every single day. You were wearing it. We were wearing it, all of us. Not everyone in that city. We were, it was a small island of people, and we were all wearing it in all communities. It was hitting everywhere. Robert lived in New York through to 1985. Imagine those five years. The onset of a mysterious disease in the community you identify with, the stigma it was met with, the political inaction, all the losses all the memorials. Robert made his way back home to Vancouver. He wasn't necessarily getting the big breaks he'd been hoping for as an actor in New York, and in fact was having some serious doubts about whether or not theater was going to be his thing anyway. I, I, think, that, I think that's true, and I, and, I, and I would also add to that that I think part of the reason 
for me also going back to Vancouver was that there was a level of PTSD that I couldn't really navigate anymore. Part of going back to Vancouver, I think, was it was a place that I knew I could, I could sort of, in a way, kind of escape to. Robert told me that Vancouver was the diametric opposite of New York. New York was condensed and packed and went up, up, up. Vancouver was an exquisite expanse, almost a diffused energy. Robert needed to diffuse on the other side of those years in New York. One of the first things he did upon his return to the West Coast, and he told me this was pivotal, was Robert started volunteering at the relatively new PWA Vancouver, People with AIDS. He was in fact starting to feel a pull away from the theater towards social work when an audition came his way for the Arts Club. It was for the show I mentioned, As Is. Now, many of us know Tony Kushner's Angels in America, I love those plays. And Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. Love it. As is predates both of them. And stands as the first mainstream play to tackle the AIDS crisis of the 80s. The piece follows a couple, Saul and Rich, their separation, and Rich's eventual return to Saul after he contracts HIV AIDS. At the audition, Bill asked Robert, which of these roles do you like the best? And I said, Saul, you know, that's like, that's the part that just fits kind of who the character comes as is just feels, I, I know what that is. Um, and so I think at the final callback, that's when I met Ormerod. Um, that's when I met Johnny. Uh, he, and he was reading the other part. Hmm. Um, the, the guy in the poster. Yeah. Yeah, the guy, the the image that that brought me to you because I I recognized your face and yeah. went, holy shit, I know that guy. It was the show poster for As Is, which I found in the city archives, that had led me to Robert in the first place. Robert had a head of hair back then. He's beautifully bald now, and he's next to another very handsome man by the name of John Ormerod. Okay, who was John Ormerod? Well, John Ormerod was a really interesting bag of um, conundrums and um, velvet and uh, corduroy. Kareem Coslow. When, you know, you end up meeting someone and it's love at first sight. It was love at first sight for the two of us. He used to always say, you know, oh, Cody, thank God, God made one of us gay. (laughs) We just... Fell in love. John was from Alberta originally and had come to the Vancouver Playhouse to train as an actor. Even though their meeting at the callback at the Arts Club was perhaps their first official meeting, John and Robert had crossed paths years earlier at a party. Robert remembers it well. But from the sounds of it, John was maybe on another wavelength. I mean, um, John was in clown at the time, at the party. Um, He showed up to the party in clown. I have been struggling with how to convey the strangeness of this to the average listener, but did happen upon this definition from Wikipedia, that clowning is a sort of, quote, reverse therapy, in which instead of ridding oneself of anxieties, the clown performer leans into their own insecurities and foibles in order to package them as comedy. Johnny's clown was uh, a sort of 
wild kind of uh, mime, white face mime in a tutu kind of clown, this sort of, um, you know, smart, wisecracking, cheeky, sexy kind of clown. And so he showed up, I think he even still had the tutu on when he showed up at this party. So I just remember us sitting across a table from each other. Um, <laughs> and then, then we started working together and, um, yeah, it's complicated, you know, uh, that's a little bit complicated to crack that one open because I think, um, I think John was the first love of my life. Hmm. And so what the role demanded in the play, I let myself go to with the guy that I was playing it with, which also probably didn't help me be very good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought acting was about pretending. Yeah, well. These two men performed Rich and Saul in As Is, directed by Bill. In the rehearsal process, thanks to Robert's connections at PWA, men with AIDS came to the rehearsal hall and spoke of their experiences. Robert remembers rehearsals being a very fast process, putting the play on its feet, but they dove deep nonetheless. I get the sense that the camera, as he had described himself, this witness who'd absorbed New York and this horrible disease and the world's relative complacency about gay lives, had been overfilled with images. And now these images were spilling out. You know, it's an interesting thing as an actor, like sometimes something can be so steeped inside of you that if you step into it, there's no going back. It cannot be harnessed. No. Did you see him and John in As Is? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. I think I, saw, I think I saw it three times. Um, you know, that show at that time, too, was, you know, ahead of its time, really. And I don't think anybody really knew what they were witnessing. You know what I mean? Like, I think most people dismissed it, unfortunately. There were nights where audience members would hackle them. Other nights where audience members walked out, which in the Seymour Street Theatre was never subtle. You had to hit the crash bar and go out into the hallway. So you didn't you didn't tiptoe out. And often I think when people wanted to leave that play, they didn't want to tiptoe anyway. And you did have walkouts? Oh, yeah, sure. People just found it uncomfortable. Uh, you know, because I did not hold back in those hospital bed scenes toward the end. Yeah, I don't know that it's, I, you know, would that things could be that. I mean, I'm still carrying it. I'm 62. Yeah. It doesn't go away. You know, why people assume, and I'm not saying you do, but there's an assumption somehow that, you know, the magic and miracle of, and suddenly we're healed. That's a, that is called living your life coming to terms with what you carry inside of you. It's the start of a friendship with John, this this show? Yes, it never got, it was always that. It was always a friendship. 
John Ormerod would eventually go on to contract HIV and die due to AIDS-related complications in 1994. Pat and Alan, John Ormerod's parents, wrote this about their son after his death. Our son John, a shy little English boy who came with us to Canada in 1969, decided at age 18 that he wanted to be an actor. He never wavered from that ambition, sacrificing security for a profession which brought him joy and heartache, which stretched his intelligence and determination to the utmost, and in which he experienced a richness of support, love, and friendship, which was life-affirming and quite remarkable. We, his parents, loved him unconditionally, and we still treasure the many times we saw him on stage. It's so hard to speak about because, you know, I haven't really spoken about it much. I really haven't. I, I realize that my, my, my house is strewn with photographs of all my friends. I, I don't take them down um, because I feel like, um, you know, they give me courage every day to be who I am, to be a bit more political, to care to always care, to always have an open mind and never shut anybody out because of the climate of the day or the political system of the day. You know, we must remain vigilant to have generosity of spirit, always, and take, yeah. take care of each other. That's everything. And I think, too, you know, what's so funny, you know, I was a woman who couldn't have children. I, I wanted children, but I couldn't. But when all my friends were having children, this was when all our friends were dying, but what was so extraordinary, and I'm so grateful in a weird kind of way, I was able to be in the hospital and sit by them and take care of them or take them where they needed to go because I did not have children. They were sort of my family, my children. What I'm hanging on to is that artists, and I suppose in this moment I'm thinking of actors in particular, Actors are messengers. In the theater, in that room, on that stage, they carry messages from life into art, from memory into performance. And when we sit down to watch a play, it's very rare that we'll know from where that message is coming from exactly. But over a few weeks in 1986, audiences in Vancouver witnessed a performance by a young man who held in his body the horrors of the New York AIDS epidemic, having beheld them only months earlier. In his body was the experience of actively engaging with Vancouver's victims of the plague. And in his body was a deep, romantic feeling for his scene partner, another gay man who once upon a time flirted with him in a tutu. It was all there, in him and in the Seymour Street Theatre. And audiences, whether they knew it or not, were in communion with love, life, and death in an extraordinary, painfully human way. That former gospel hall, well after its conversion, was still a site for the sacred. So when I think of that building being gone, I think of this history being all the more precarious all the more at risk of being lost. Act 3. Ghosts. A loss in the theatre reverberates in its own distinct way. 
In 2013, dramaturg Rachel Deiter wrote an online article that reflected on the Vancouver theater scene. She wrote, quote, My own theater community in Vancouver, the unwieldy family that I love so much, has suffered a lot of loss, personal and professional, of varying degrees over the last few years. It has aged us. Our losses have forced many of us to question, why keep going? Oh, totally. And I think that's what I meant by that unwieldy family. So yes, the highs and the lows definitely are. It all felt quite intense, but I'm not sure that's different in other communities. Maybe it is, but um, but yeah, there were some really significant events that happened here, personal events for, for people that really shook the community and, um, you know, events on the scale of, you know, the health of various companies like the Playhouse. Um, and yeah, those things affected everybody very deeply. We're very interconnected, um, very interdependent. In previous episodes, you've heard some of my conversations with Katrina Dunn. She is the former artistic director of Vancouver's Touchstone Theatre. But I hadn't originally reached out to her for her recollections of early Vancouver theatre, as qualified as she is to talk about it. Katrina, after stepping down as AD, got her doctorate in philosophy from the University of British Columbia. I had emailed her because I'd come across her dissertation, which I found after a quick Google search on real estate's impact on the city's theatre ecology. I was quite amazed that somebody had zeroed in on this very issue. Her paper was called Empty House, Real Estate and Theatricality in Vancouver's Downtown. I read the whole thing, all 260 pages. Can you hear me patting my back? You're worried about Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Because it's hard for you to see. Can you define geopathology? So, yeah, dear listener, geopathology. I'd never heard this term before, and Katrina breaks it down for me like a helpful director. Geo, meaning earth or space or ground. Pathology, meaning illness. So we're talking about an illness of space. As she puts it, something's wrong about how we are, where we are. There was this amazing piece of um, yarn bombing in Vancouver. Um, do you know about yarn bombing? No. Okay, yarn bombing, it, it's usually realized when people go out and like knit a tree, like they, they go, it's like a, like it's supposed to be a, it's a sort of like a kind of vandalism where you, you're not supposed to be seen. So they go at night and they like knit a big, beautiful thing around the trunk of a tree. They usually, it's usually how it manifests. But there was this, this incredible piece of visual art on, um, uh, West 6th, that sort of throughway that runs through, and there was a kind of an empty kind of desolate lot with a chain-linked fence around it. And somebody had written in yarn on this chain-link fence, homesick for a place that doesn't exist. Homesick for a place that doesn't exist. And I remember I was driving by and I was like, ah, and I stopped and I stared at it, got out of the car, took a bunch of pictures. This idea of being homesick for a place that doesn't exist. So in other words, we have a space, but it doesn't hold us in the way that we expect our home to. It's just a sense that there's something wrong with this space. There's something wrong with 
um, the way we are in our space. Most movingly, Katrina writes about the demise of the Vancouver Playhouse in 2012. It's perhaps the most potent way she proves her point about how the downtown is hostile towards large-scale theatre. It's in line with a painful quote from SFU geography prof Nicholas Blomley. He says, The very creation of the city and its continued remaking seems all too often to be associated with acts of dispossession and eviction, end quote. The loss of the Playhouse is a recurring topic in my conversations about the Arts Club. All those job opportunities on a big stage, no more. A storied history of important Canadian works, cut off. And what it meant for the Arts Club to suddenly become the ipso facto regional theatre of the Lower Mainland, something it had never been designed to be, though through its considerable growth was bound to become. The Vancouver Playhouse's website is still up online, and it's an eerie memorial, one that doesn't acknowledge the disappearance of the company in any way. It's like a cryogenic freezing. The homepage invites me to subscribe and to still take part in the 2011-12 season. In my conversations, I detect recurring confusion from many different folks who don't understand why Vancouverites and Canadians at large, be it governmental bodies or philanthropists, didn't come to the rescue of the Playhouse. And why after an initial burst of shock and outrage did the protests die off so quickly? Was it, as someone told me, death by a thousand cuts over many decades, with no hope of the patient recovering? The Playhouse's press release attributed their closure to, quote, challenging economic times, an inefficient operating model within the downtown theater space, and the cost of temporary production facilities, end quote. As Katrina put it, quote, issues with and lack of control over property appeared to be at the core of the company's problems. My God, that was a terrible blow to the arts community. Marsha Lederman, arts writer for The Globe and Mail, based in Vancouver, takes me back to 2012, when it all went down. I remember it was a Saturday night, because the announcement had happened on a Friday, and I remember I was, I took a day off. I would think it was a pro D day or something. I was with my kid at Science World, and all of a sudden, these calls started coming into my phone that this has happened, and I was shocked. I I was absolutely shocked. Then on the Saturday night, there was almost an impromptu kind of gathering, sort of a protest, but more of a lovin' outside the doors of the Playhouse Theatre. And people were writing notes um, of, like, love notes to the theatre company. And... John Mann, may he rest in peace, who ha- who was an actor as well as the lead singer of Spirit of the West, showed up with a guitar and he climbed onto a car. I don't know if it was his <laughs> or someone else's. And he sang uh, to the people who had gathered. And as I say, it's such a tight-knit community here. There were so many familiar faces in the crowd. And it was so emotional and beautiful and sad and I never felt so <sighs> sort of impotent like all these people cared that much and they weren't able to change anything 
And I think about that a lot. I think about that Saturday night outside the playhouse, John Mann on a car singing to us with his guitar and all these people who cared so much and couldn't do a thing. I knew John Mann a little. I played his son in a musical at the Vancouver Playhouse called Beyond Eden. He was unfailingly kind to me. I was 30 years old, (laughs) playing 13, and he never made me feel weird about that. And his humility, I would say, in the process and in the performance of the show, was a bottomless thing. He was lost to complications related to early-onset Alzheimer's in 2019. Jill, John Mann's wife, gave us permission to play a bit of this song that he wrote from the album and show The Waiting Room. The song is called Moving Day. You away All your paintings, books and chairs Were all picked through by your kids Your heirs and you were gone You've been given away I know you're gone I saw them drive you away There is no embarking on a trek through history of any kind, particularly in the way I've been trying to, through conversations with people, that doesn't invoke those who've passed, like John Mann. Theater may be the art of letting go, but it's also the art of repetition, of being in practice with something and reviving it time and time again. Every time it's uttered anew, a name, a life, the art they made, the people they connected with. Someone once made the distinction for me between a spirit and a ghost. I wish I could remember who said this. A spirit is someone who has passed. A ghost is someone who has passed, but is asking for something of the living. There are names that I came across when I'd bring them up to people. You could hear the person's temperature shift on the other line. The way ghosts change the temperature of a room when they enter it. On the edge of making their request of us. Longtime stage manager at the Arts Club, Karen Fair, on actor and writer Dennis Simpson. What was Dennis like? Um, beautiful man. One of my dearest friends. Um... Uh, again, just like this all-encompassing energy and kindness and joy about life and, and, you know, dedicated to bringing joy to the people around him. I noted that, um, and it, it comes with a pretty cheeky poster, but this this show called Dennis Anyone? Yeah. Can you yeah. tell me about it? <laughs> um, it, was a, it was his autobiogra- autobiographical show. He... Um, just uh, wanted to write a show uh, based on his life, you know, right from when he left Jamaica and came here, his relationship with his mother. His did he play his mom? He did. He, huh. Yeah, he even he gave birth to himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sitting brilliant. At, sitting at the top of a uh, playground slide. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was very beautifully, beautiful theatrical moment. Marcia Sibthorpe on Chris Conti, who died of complications due to HIV-AIDS. 
Well, for me, a devastating one, which probably no one except his family and the Arts Club, really, um, one of my, my, our, uh, electrician board operators uh, died. And um, I had worked with him for 15 years, really closely. As, as a lighting designer, you're working with, they're your people. They're, they're the people that are going to make what you do look good. And they're the people you count on. Bill Millard on the Wright sisters. The actor Susan Wright, who tragically passed in a house fire. And her sister Janet Wright. Well, first of all, they were, uh, well, they were very different. Janet was more the sort of baritone, if I may use that analogy, and Susan the soprano. Uh, Susan had a, um, and, and also they uh, both connected to an audience, or an audience connected to them. A kind of audience connection that, that you know, you, you can't fake. Warm and wanting to, uh, when they came to Vancouver from, from uh, Saskatoon, wanting to include, um, you know, everybody. This is former Arts Club artist liaison Stephanie Hargraves on Janet Wright. She was so real and she had a great sense of humor. And she, uh, you know, she was terrifying, but everybody, you know, everybody loved her. And um, she, it, it, she just, she was just so real and she really cared about them. And she loved what she did for a living. Yeah. Yeah, a lifer, right? Oh, gotcha. Singer-songwriter, playwright Anne Mortify on performer Leon Bibb. I think his his um, teaching, he taught through his singing about his people with beautiful, beautiful, and, and, and where they had come from, what it was like to be the son of someone who came out of slavery. And mm. he, he went back and all of his songs had stories attached to them why were the why would why did they sing that song and what did it mean performers marcus mosley and lavina fox on singer actor sybil thrasher yeah she was like my sister she's the one yeah she's the one uh if i hadn't met her in the studio i don't think i would have done ragtime and i, I my career might have gone in a whole nother direction she I, every time i'd see her it, until you know, unfortunately we lost her last year. I'd say, how's my big sister? She goes, oh, hi, my little sister. You know, we just love, we were like a family. You know, it was really like a family. I was waiting there, sitting at the table, waiting for my turn to, to go on stage. And, and then Rael came to the mic and says, ladies and gentlemen, the lady of the hour has arrived. And he was given this big fanfare of a introduction and the whole house just went up. Everybody knew who was coming. And then the band started playing this uh, this song. I forget which what what the song was right now. And, and Sybil came and just took the stage and just brought the house down. She she just rocked the place. And I thought I gotta follow that. <laughs> My God! But she was just um, a powerhouse party girl performer. She she knew how to to to, to make the house have a great time. Corrine Coslow on actor John Moffat, who died of AIDS-related complications. He drove a, 
Um, a Volvo, and I always knew he's because Jane Sibbery would be on stun, and uh, I would just run out, and you know we would drive like you know <laughs> with Jane Sibbery, and I'd sit beside him, and he'd always have his hand on my knee and just scratch my knee all the way to the hospital, and, and we did that for a couple of years, and uh, you know it was just support, it was a lot of um, just love. Designer Ken McDonald on actor Brent Carver. Maybe the 70s, because I was teaching, I didn't go to a lot of theater. I thought, of course, I went to everything because I was living with Brent. I went to everything that he was in, and he was in a lot of stuff at the arts club. No, I was only going to say, I didn't know you and Brent had been together for a while. Nine years. Oh, wow. The, the 70s, the whole 70s. We met in university. He was like 19, I was 21 when we started living together yeah huh yeah so that that's amazing yeah i'm very sorry he's oh, gone it's just it's un, it's unbearable uh, yeah thank you i know but yeah it's just such a such a loss he was such a talent even when we were in university he was like you know i guess 18 when i met him and he was in hello doll he was just you just went wow and i remember one stupid review i mean imagine a review for a university show how how good could it possibly be they went, that kid's headed for broadway and he thought Wow, you know, and he was. Karen Fair and Ken McDonald on singer-songwriter and actor, John Mann. The honor of watching John go through that rehearsal period and through that performance every night and watching the care from Jill, you know, she guided him through, you know, all of the challenges that he was facing. His wonderful wife would touch him on the shoulder and kind of say, "Okay, you sing now," and he would sing. And then at the end, the cast all came on stage and danced while the band played. And he was just ah, he was so free and so because his mind was going, and it was so sad to see this brilliant lyricist musician just drifting away. But you could see when he when he danced at the end of the show, and he and John Young were dressed identically as each other, and they just held hands and danced. I spoke to Bill Millard for many hours for this podcast. I'd ask him about moments that stressed him out, that overjoyed him, that pissed him off. By and large, he was pretty measured in his responses. But there was that temperature shift in him when he spoke of the Seymour Street Theatre and having to say goodbye to it. When we were tearing apart, you know, tearing it down, some of the, uh, some of the, the guys who had worked there or, you know, there were some actors who also, you know, subbed us 
as carpenters or, you know, set up and take down for the extra cash. And I remember one of them pounding the walls, you know, wanting to destroy um, or take out his frustration, his anger that we were losing this space, uh, wanted to destroy it. He said, it, you know, the sooner they tear it down, the better, because if it stands there as a reminder, uh, it'll be so, so difficult. Uh, and it, 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 it didn't take them very long to tear it down. So it didn't, it didn't stand there, uh, fortunately. But as I say, the lot itself um, was not developed. I refused after it was closed. I never went. Uh, I refused to go to where the theater was. I never, uh, if I was driving down Seymour Street, I sped past. I refused to look at it. It reminded me of my father who um, never went back to the cannery once he closed it. Even though he sold the property to the fisheries ministry, he refused to go back. I mentioned Larry Lillo earlier, golden boy of the Vancouver theatre scene, who died of AIDS-related complications in 1993. It was a huge loss for the community. Years later, he came to Morris Panitch in a dream. And through Morris, Larry talks to us in the now. Like I said, ghosts show up to ask for something of the living. Larry, after he died, came to me in a dream at the foot of my bed. And what makes it scary is it was all, you know, those dreams where everything else, everything else is real. Like, it's like, oh, is this actually happening? And I woke up and Larry was at the foot of my bed and he said, I want you to get up tomorrow and I want you to start a file in your computer and call it Extra Days. And that's all he said. And I didn't do it for a few days. I thought, this is a fucking nightmare. I can't do this. This is like a fucking nightmare. What if he actually, what if, you know, whatever. But I did eventually start that file. Of course, nothing showed up in that file. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> but, but, um, but I did tell the story at John's funeral because I talked about what legacy that people leave when they die. And that legacy is, is a, it's an important passing on of uh, responsibility to you as an individual to do something better with your life than you've been doing, or at least to do something with your life that would make their lives more meaningful. And I don't really know if I've done that, but I do have to remind myself every once in a while that this isn't really about me. This is really about my, I have this extra time and I've been given this extra time. And now I look at Mary and I've been given another fucking, I don't know, 30, more, more than 30 years of extra time to do things that I need to do, to do things that need to be done. And I think that uh, Larry, that's what, that was one of his gifts to me, was to leave me that message. Life and death and memory. Join me next time. The story continues. For this particular episode, a heartfelt thank you to Morris Panich, Bill Millard, Marcia Sibthorpe, Sheila Cox, Jerry Wasserman, Kareen Coslow, Robert McQueen, Katrina Dunn, Rachel Deiter, Marcia Lederman, Stephanie Hargraves, Karen Fair, Lavina Fox, Marcus Mosley, and Jill Dom. 
This Is Something Else is produced by the Arts Club Theatre. It's been written, directed, and hosted by yours truly, Andrew Kushner. My podcast assistant with research, dramaturgy, and EDI is Priti Daliwal. Sound design and editing by Kevin Galt. Original music by the Golden Age of Wrestling. I'm Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. And I'm Peter Cathy White, the Executive Director at the Arts Club. This is Something Else, Consciously Eclectic Histories of the Arts Club, is generously supported by ITC Construction Group, BMO Financial Group, KPMG, BFL Canada, and longtime patron Lee Grills. We would also like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver for their ongoing support. And of course, it goes without saying that not just this podcast, but every production created by the Arts Club requires collaboration and teamwork across our organization. From our development team that connects with our amazing donors and community partners, allowing us the opportunity to fund projects such as this, to our marketing and guest services departments that ensure our audiences are able to access the work, to our admin and finance department that supports all of our activities, and to our production department, who learned a whole new way of creating great art in order to record and prepare these podcasts. To our artistic department, who welcomes and hosts the incredible freelance artists with whom we are so lucky to collaborate. And to our education department, that finds innovative ways to connect our audiences with the content we are creating. We are so grateful to work with the passionate, curious, and determined staff at the Arts Club. This is truly a collaborative effort that takes people and resources and, of course, the support from donors and subscribers, people like you. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in supporting more new works and local artists at the Arts Club, please visit artsclub.com and consider making a tax-deductible gift.